So the Lord speaking through the prophet Malachi. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, as we turn to look at that passage together, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, still our hearts, that you would be at work by your Spirit, that we would hear what you have to say to us today, Lord. We pray that we would be more conscious of your love and faithfulness to your people as we spend time here in this passage. We pray you would guide us and help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I've been watching a, a documentary recently. I'm kind of working my way through it. And uh, you may not be surprised to hear that it's a, a football documentary. Um, it's called Super League, The War for Football. And it charts uh, three momentous days last April when the 12 biggest clubs in Europe announced that they were forming a new Super League with no promotion or relegation. It would be a closed shop where these 12 clubs would play uh, continuously uh, without ever worrying about getting knocked out of the league. And it met with uh, howls of derision from football supporters all over the world. The idea that there would be this closed shop was not at all popular, and it quickly collapsed and uh, was soon to be no more. Um, but this documentary, it, it, it speaks to all the main protagonists that were involved on both sides of that debate. Uh, at the time, the head of the European governing body, Alexander Seferin, uh, he spoke out against this. Um, but also, uh, they speak to Andrea Agnelli, who was the president of uh, the Italian giants Juventus um, and was a, a key figure in trying to form this Super League. And what uh, I was completely unaware of was that Agnelli and Seferin, who were on both sides of this argument, on either side of this argument, they were actually extremely close friends. In fact, Seferin was goddaughter to Agnelli, eh, godfather to Agnelli's daughter. 
And so through the lead up to this, Agnelli had led Seferin to believe that he was supporting reforms within UEFA, European Governance Body, all the while he was working on this Super League idea. And he's asked in the documentary, do you think what you did was immoral, betraying your friend? And his response was, it's business. Morality doesn't come into it. Certainly, his friend Seferin didn't see it that way. He saw it as the ultimate betrayal. Betrayal, when someone that we once trusted breaks our trust, it can be hard to get over, can't it? When someone who was once faithful proves to be faithless, that can cause lasting damage to a relationship. And depending on the nature of the relationship and the nature of the betrayal, uh, sometimes that, that can be incredibly difficult to recover from. It's hard not to become embittered and cynical when someone we once trusted is faithless. And that's why the passage that we're looking at today is a good gift to us because it tells us that God knows exactly what it's like to experience betrayal. He knows what it's like to be discarded by those he loves, but he also promises to do something about it. But before we dive in, it's helpful to just recap where we've got to so far in the book of Malachi, because in order to understand how God's people could be so faithless, we need to understand what led them to this point. Malachi had been given a message from God to share with his people at a time when nothing much seemed to be happening. The people had returned from exile and the temple had been rebuilt. But the days of miracles seemed to be far behind them and the passage uh, and the people were still waiting for God's promised king to come. Uh, apathy had well and truly set in. The people were really just going through the motions in terms of their worship to God. And it's into that situation that God speaks. And we've seen that Malachi is shaped around six disputations. Six times God makes a declaration and six times the people dispute it. And it's kind of depressing, isn't it? That the, the fact that this, this book is structured around a series of disputes kind of tells us uh, that things were at a real low point in terms of the nation's relationship with God. Uh, and we saw just how low at the beginning of chapter one. We saw there how God declared his love for his people, but their response was to cynically question it. And last week we saw how their cynicism about God's love, it led to empty ritual in their worship. These people who had no sense of God's love for them had no desire to give God sacrifices that were worthy of him. Half-hearted worship, it follows from a heart that doesn't know God's love. And once that kind of empty worship has become the order of the day, then it's not long before faithlessness will follow. If I'm cynical about God's love for me, then worship will be a drudgery. It won't be a joy. And when worship is just an outward religious duty, not an outworking of a thankful heart, then hypocrisy won't be far behind. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. God's people had lost sight of God's love. 
They'd lost sight of God's worth. And that led to them living as they pleased with no regard for God. And it's into that situation that God speaks these words in chapter 2. If you look with me at verse 10. God says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So God begins by reminding his people of the family bonds that they share as his children. And it's an incredibly important point that faithlessness to God is inextricably linked to faithlessness to one another. In other words, our attitude to God will be seen in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Family relationships can be messy sometimes. Sometimes we can upset one another, and that is true in the church family as well. There is no such thing as a perfect church. All of us are sinful, and the closer that we get to one another, the better that we get to know one another, the more that we will see one another's faults and failings. And it can be easy when we see those things to feel justified in taking the moral high ground, to to cast judgment, to, to bear a grudge, to gossip about others. But if we're at odds with a fellow believer, if we're faithless towards a brother and sister in Christ, if we refuse to be reconciled, then we need to understand that faithlessness towards our brothers and sisters is also faithlessness towards our Heavenly Father. One day, we will be gathered together as God's family for eternity, where there will be no room for grudges or bitterness. And in the meantime, we are called to live together as the family that God created us to be a family who loves in a way that that covers over a multitude of sins, where our desire should be to faithfully spur one another on to love and good deeds. As we live as children of the same heavenly Father who created us to be His, God has called His people to faithfulness, and that, that faithfulness to Him, one of the ways that is expressed is in the way his people are to be faithful to each other. When God's people are faithful to one another, when we are characterized by love and forgiveness towards one another, instead of bitterness and hostility, the world gets to see something beautiful, something so radically different from what it sees anywhere else. But in Malachi's day, there was no faithfulness. The people instead were faithless. Five times in this passage, the word faithless appears. These were a people who were no different to the nations around them. And that faithlessness towards one another and towards God then found its expression in two particular ways that are highlighted in this passage. And the first of those is condemned by God in verse 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob 
any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So God condemns his people for trampling on their relationship with him and their crime, marrying the daughter of a foreign God. Now, it's important to be clear what God is and isn't saying here. First of all, God is not condemning his people for marrying people of other nations on racial grounds. The Bible is clear that all human beings are made in the image of God, and there are no prohibitions against marrying someone of another race, nationality, or culture. Christians should be quick to condemn racism wherever we see it. The vision that we have in the book of Revelation of God's future kingdom is of God's family gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation, joined together as one people under the same heavenly father. It's a glorious picture. Uh, And one of the things that I love about this church is that we get to see a tiny glimpse of that future reality when we gather here every week. Uh, Right now, Grace Church Leaf is made up of more than 20 different nationalities who regularly gather here in this building. And I think that is a beautiful picture of what it means to be God's people. So God is not condemning his people for marrying uh, people of other nations on racial grounds. No, the key to understanding what he condemns is in that phrase, the daughter of a foreign god. Now, that phrase implies someone who is devoted to a different God, someone whose identity is bound up in the God that they worship, and that is what God condemns. Marrying someone who worships a different God, who who didn't share their faith in Yahweh, and it's something that he condemns repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Now, why is that? Well, because time after time after time, whenever his people married those who worshipped foreign gods, they ended up worshipping those gods as well. Instead of being faithful to God, they were faithless. They devoted themselves to all sorts of false gods that, that led them away from Yahweh, the one true God. And it led them into all manner of disgraceful practices, which caused them and and others incredible damage. One of the gods that the surrounding nations worshipped was the god Molech. And worshippers of Molech, they practiced child sacrifice. Uh, And we see in the Old Testament that that's what some of the Israelites got caught up in. They married into that, uh, and they engaged in that terrible practice. And God describes their actions as an abomination, something that profanes the sanctuary of the Lord. God's sanctuary was the place where his presence dwelt among the people. And so by worshiping foreign gods, they were discarding their relationship with him. God's commands are intended for our good. They're given by a God who loves his people and wants what's best for them. But these people, they had denied God's love for them. And that had led to empty worship, which had now led them to the place of faithlessness, of discarding any love for him. It's a natural progression, isn't it? 
Uh, if I think that God doesn't care about me, well then, you know, if I, don't, if I think he doesn't love me, well then sooner or later I'm not going to care about him, am I? My, my worship will be whole. And soon enough I won't really care about obeying his commands because I won't see what's behind them. I won't see that they come from a God who loves me and wants what's best for me. Instead, I'll make decisions that, that I think will be what's best for me, even if those decisions are at odds with his clear commands. And time and again, one of the places where that is seen most is in who we enter into a relationship with. When we enter into a relationship with someone who doesn't worship the God that we worship. The repeated warning throughout the Bible is that loving the wrong person leads to worshiping the wrong God. Pursuing a relationship with someone who doesn't share your love for the Lord, God says that that will turn your heart away from him. Either your desire to honor the Lord will be, be choked by worldly desires as you're drawn to love the gods of your partner, or you may find yourself in the lonely position of living out the consequences of that decision for a lifetime. Kathy Keller writes, if only I could pair those sadder and wiser women and men who have found themselves in unequal marriages, either by their own foolishness or due to one person finding Christ after the marriage had already occurred, with the blithely optimistic singles who are convinced that their passion and commitment will overcome all obstacles. Even the obstacle of bold disobedience need not apply to them. Only 10 minutes of conversation, one minute if the person is really succinct, would be necessary. In the words of one woman who was married to a perfectly nice man who did not share her faith, if you think you are lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you're married. So God's condemnation of Israel here is meant to act as a warning for us. Do we believe what God says is true? That love for the wrong person turns our hearts away from God. Now, it's important to say that that is not all the Bible has to say on this. You know, while this passage acts as a stark warning for those who are yet to marry, for those who find themselves on the other side of that decision, for those who are already married to someone who doesn't share your faith, that's not the end of the story. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we're given an example of what can happen when, when a wife lives out a faithful life in front of her unbelieving husband that sometimes our witness in marriage can lead to an unbelieving spouse coming to, to love and trust in the Lord for themselves as they, they see the way that, that, that Christ uh, shapes their lives. That can be an incredible witness in the midst of that. And it's wonderful when that happens. And we've seen that happen in the life of our church. God in his goodness and his faithfulness can redeem our relationships. He's able to, to work in any situation, and we should pray to that end. But that truth should not be used as a reason to enter into a marriage that God so clearly describes as an expression of faithlessness here. So God, he condemns the people's faithlessness in marrying those who worship false gods. And then secondly, he addresses those who've expressed their faithlessness to him by being faithless in their marriages. If you look with me at verse 13. And the second thing you do, 
you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So this is actually the beginning of the third disputation in this book. Uh, these people, they were turning up at the altar, making all sorts of excessive displays of emotion, all sorts of passionate declarations of devotion to God. But he wasn't listening. God declares that he no longer regards their offerings with favor. And the people challenge him, verse 14, but you say, why does he not? And God gives them the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So God condemns them for being faithless in marriage. Not only were God's people guilty of taking foreign wives, in order to marry women outside the covenant community, these men had abandoned their Israelite wives. They'd been faithless. They had broken the covenant promise that they had made in marriage, that they would be faithful. But it wasn't just a promise that they'd made to their wife. It was a promise that they had made before God, and he had been witness to it. But more than that, this covenant before God it had been blessed by his spirit, verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. These verses clearly express how much God cherishes the union of husband and wife before him in marriage. And because it was a promise made before God, that spiritual dimension added an extra level of protection to the bond that was created. When we make promises to our spouse before God, that is not something that's to be taken lightly. What we're doing is making solemn vows to one another. We are entering into a, a binding commitment before God that we will love and cherish our spouse until death parts us. Marriage was a gift from God to his people where husband and wife could express their love for one another and raise their children to love and honor him. And for these people to break that promise, to discard the wives of their youth for no other reason than they decided that they didn't love them anymore was something that God considered abhorrent. In fact, he describes it in verse 16 as violence. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. There's a little footnote at the bottom of this page uh, on this verse which highlights the fact that, that some early manuscripts include the phrase, the Lord hates divorce. Now, there are some legitimate grounds for divorce in the Bible where the victim of adultery or desertion is entitled to seek a divorce from their spouse. But the kind of divorce that's being described in Malachi is one that God hates. One that God considers a violent act. 
Such a divorce did, did violence to a spouse, it did violence to their children, and it did violence to the wider community. God hates things that harm us. And when someone divorces their spouse because they don't feel like loving them anymore, or because they've fallen in love with someone else, that causes incredible pain for the spouse and their children who are on the receiving end of a choice like that. And in the case of a professing Christian, it does real harm to their church family as well. You know, we live in a world that tells us to follow our hearts, to be guided by our feelings. And if we don't feel like loving our spouse anymore, then we need to be true to ourselves. We need to pursue our own happiness, even if that makes other people feel sad. But the Bible's view of love goes far deeper than a feeling or an emotion. In the Bible, love is a choice. It's a commitment to love even when we don't feel like it, even when it can feel like hard work. And that's the kind of love that God has shown us. It's a love that's steadfast. It's a love that is unchanging. It's a love that is rooted and grounded in his covenant promises to his people, promises that he will always keep, promises that find their fulfillment in his son, Jesus. In Jesus, we see the ultimate demonstration of faithfulness to a faithless people. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he was willing to be betrayed. That he was willing to go to his death on a cross despite our faithlessness. That he was willing to bear the punishment of our sins so that we could be forgiven. That he was willing to die so that we might have life. That tells us that his love for his people is sure, that it will never be taken away, that it will always be secure. In Jesus, we have a Savior who hates the things that harm us and who meets us in our pain. For those who have been victims of faithlessness at the hands of a spouse or who've known what it is as children to, to experience the pain caused by a parent's divorce. Be assured that God knows. He knows what happened to you. He knows what it is to experience faithlessness. And he promises to be faithful to his people. He is the God of all comfort, who meets us in our pain, and our sadness. The God whose mercies are new every morning. The God who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes when he writes every wrong and welcomes us home to his eternal kingdom, a kingdom where as his children we will know the loving embrace of a faithful father who delights to call us his. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who is faithful, a God who loves your people, whose love is steadfast and unchanging. And we thank you ultimately that you have expressed that faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that
One of the images that we have in the Bible of the Lord Jesus is as a bridegroom, a, a, a faithful groom who will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness that, that he showed in willing to be betrayed to go to the cross so that we might know what it is to be forgiven for all the times where we have been faithless. Lord, we pray that we would rest in him. We thank you, Lord God, that you're a God who promises to comfort us in our sadness, in the moments where we're lonely, in the moments where we struggle with bitterness uh, at past betrayal. Lord, help us to find our peace and our, our security in you, that your spirit would be at work in us and that you would shape us and you would cause us to, to know that comfort and, and peace and hope that you give us in Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that as a family here, we would be a faithful family to one another, that we would be a, a place where relationships are rich, um, where they are healthy, where uh, people can feel built up and encouraged and part of a people together, united in the bonds of Christ. And we pray these things as in his name. And as we come to this table now to take bread and wine, we pray that again we would be reminded of the communion that we share in him and in one another. We pray these things in his name. Amen.